Hi, and welcome to The Sustainable Century, where we explore with experts, with leaders, activists, communities of interest, mothers, fathers, and kids, how to buy, how to work, and how to invest for happier lives and a healthier planet. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. Today, our guest is Dr. Kwan. Uh, Dr. Kwan is uh, Vietnamese, and he's a foremost expert on rural and agricultural development. He does a lot of work for the United Nations throughout his home country, but in many other countries as well. Uh, Dr. Kwan is the author of the incredibly interesting book and incredibly difficult to pronounce, Hitrotropia in Forest Management. It's an incredible book, but that's not really what we're going to talk about today. Today we're going to talk about uh, climate crisis and how it's affecting real-time folks in Vietnam, particularly in the low-lying areas of the Mekong Delta. Uh, Dr. Kwan, welcome to the show. Uh, hi everyone. Uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you for welcoming me. Hi everyone. Yeah, Dr. Kwan and I have spent many hours uh, traveling around Vietnam together and I can tell you this, there is nobody I would want representing my communities and helping my communities uh, uh, facing the global crisis uh, than him. So I, ha I wanted to start, I know we talked about this a lot, uh, Kwan, uh, but yes. the the, we know the, global, the climate crisis is a global crisis, but how is it seen in Vietnam? How do, how do people feel about it there? What are they, what are they saying? Um, well, actually, thank you, Mark. Um, uh, I think that um, right here and right now, I mean, the focal point of Vietnam in Mekong Delta, I mean, Traving province, uh, one of the 13 provinces in Mekong Delta suffer most from the climate change. So nowadays, uh, I mean, climate change is no more a myth. It's actually now a reality. People in Vietnam, especially in Mekong Delta, now they talk a lot about climate change. They talk about sea level rising. They talk about uh, hot temperature. They talk about salinity intrusion. So it's real. It's real here. Yeah, I, I mean, what, I think one of the problems about climate change and the climate crisis in the United States and why there's still a lot of people that are ambivalent, let's say, even if they do believe that it's a, a real crisis, is that it's not really hitting them in the in the pocketbook or are really at their homes. I mean, I, I imagine that a lot of people in Vietnam are actually feeling it in their annual income statement, so to speak. Uh, well, I think that I would uh, strongly invite people who do not really believe in climate change to see my place, to see the Mekong Delta, then you can really feel the difference. I think local people here, they're now really suffering from climate change in view of uh, sea level rising. The whole region is now subsided, uh, subsiding and uh, salinity intrusion. Some people live very far, far away from the sea, which they had never had feeling of salinity intrusion, but now they really suffer from that. So those points, I think that um, the, the clear uh, signals and symptoms of uh, climate change, I think, one thing that's always made me a bit angry is that, you know, is the, the, the two countries that are most responsible for climate, you know, carbon emissions, which are driving climate change, China with about 27% of all global emissions and the United States with about 15. I mean, we're talking close to 50%. There are just two countries. Vietnam has less than 1%. It's about zero. It's about 0.55% of global carbon emissions. Why should Vietnamese people have to fix this? I mean, do, are they worried about their own emissions or other countries are responsible for the mess that they're in? <laughs> it's quite interesting story and quite interesting discussion. I think that climate change uh, maybe uh, different people have uh, might have different understanding, but uh, 
let's say for local people in uh, Mekong Delta, for example, they daily suffer from the, the risks and the influence of climate change. So in that sense, um, I would say, um, whatever we talk about the emission and the contribution, but uh, local people here, I think they talk more about how they suffer, like you mentioned earlier, that they suffer from uh, less income, they suffer from the less productivity of their crops and animals. So all kind of thing, I think, uh, that is something we want to address, right? Rather than uh, talking about CO2 emissions uh, at global level we, we are discussing. Yeah, well, I, I did notice actually that the, the emissions of Vietnam are rising very, very quickly. That's not to say you're responsible for much at, at such a low rate uh, globally overall. But I remember one time we went and uh, we visited a fella uh, that was using a mangrove forest to grow organic uh, fish and shrimp and prawns and I, i'm just wondering what are some of the things that people are doing to try and um you know so compensate uh, uh or become resilient to uh the climate crisis there yeah i think that um is this is this another int uh, interesting question i think uh, now people start uh, thinking about uh, i mean applying different terminology or different practices in view of uh, adaptation in view of resilience and in view of even mitigation and i think that most people here they think uh, they they tend to apply more the adaptation in my view and also in local people's view here they they see that adaptation is more um it's easier in in, in, in implementation so uh, you and me we have observed the situation of the mangrove plantation in order to prevent from salinity intrusion uh, but uh, from that perspective uh, uh, people also use mangrove to raise another aquaculture activity as well. So that is some forms of adaptation. Um, also, uh, uh, nowadays in Mekong Delta, they use the, another terms of transformation. Um, uh, adaptation here is understood by people in the sense that uh, they might change their crops uh, or my varieties in order to adapt more to the, um, to the change of, uh, of climate. Yeah, now you've mentioned uh, a couple of times saline intrusion, um, and you know a lot of people aren't actually familiar with what that means. Can you give an example of it? I yeah, it's it's uh, this is one of the most observable uh, problems nowadays in Mekong Delta. Let me give you an example. Um, we have few districts uh, in Traving Province, uh, which is about seventy or eighty kilometers from the sea, uh, or even in some districts they are about one hundred and twenty kilometers from the sea. They have never filled uh, the salt, uh, I mean, the, the salty, uh, um, how to say it, the, 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 the salinity in the water. But um, from last year, they, uh, when they, because they always have the practice of testing the water, the fresh water in their field in order for plantation and from also for raising a stream, for example. Since last year, local people say that they still feel, they, they really feel the, uh, the water, the fresh water, as they call, is now really shunty. That uh, it, it can no more uh, suitable, uh, appropriate for rice cultivation anymore, even for stream grazing. So, in in that sense, uh, saline intrusion it's uh, it's it's very clear to the to the, to the people nowadays, and it's uh, it goes through the underground water. Yeah, and but if you look at the Mekong Delta, the, it's it's quite an important area of agriculture. In fact, it's it's like a, responsible for about 11 million tons of rice. About uh, that's yes. almost two thirds. No, that's about what about half the country's production of rice. 
actually is seventy percent. Yeah. So this is not this is not just a, this is not just like this is a big food security issue. I mean, I know that a lot of rice and shrimp, a lot of agricultural products are actually exported. So it's an export issue as well yeah. as uh, just a food security issue. I mean, how how close to dangerous is this? Um, I think that uh, of course in Vietnam nowadays uh, the issues of food security is no more a big problem. Even with a limited area, people still produce enough food for uh, for the whole population. So uh, now we, uh, in Vietnam nowadays, we are talking more about rice export. And you know that in some year, we are the first uh, country in the world exporting rice to the other country. Uh, example is that last year, we, we gained about $3 billion from rice exporting, mainly from Mekong Delta. Um, however, I think uh, given the problems of climate change, there are a few interventions nowadays, government and local people trying to adapt. Some people who still want to go with rice production, they try to apply the new, what you call saline resilient rice variety, which are more or less appropriate and adapt to the situation of, uh, of saline water. But some other people now, they transform to aquaculture, and more and more people transform to aquaculture, uh, using their field to uh, plant uh, aquaculture, including uh, uh, blood crocodile, like you have seen already, and fish and other kind of shrimps. I think um, again, there is something that we call adaptation. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it it it's very interesting to see. We also saw a lot of um, well, you know, anybody who's been to Vietnam, they they always come back saying, "Wow, it's some of the best food in the world," and it is. I mean, I love Mexico, but it's right up there with Mexican food for me. I tell you that. And what always <laughs> struck me the most is how fresh people love their food. And how um, and 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 how important that is to have fresh food, and and you see a movement there in in Vietnam for uh, fresh food and for uh, natural food and for organic food. That's starting to take off in some places, or it's still pretty localized. Yes, I I, I strongly agree. I don't know if it is too early to address, but I think uh, uh, people in Vietnam, you know, that they are very active uh, as first point. And secondly, they are so how to say they are very optimistic. Um, optimistic, um, <laughs> in the sense that uh, they see maybe to a certain extent they uh, they are afraid of the risks of climate change, but they also see some potential from climate change, in the sense that they might use their own knowledge, they use the opportunity to transform their own production into the new forms that uh, can adapt to the um, climate ch uh, change. Uh, you, you have seen already the models of stream raising under the mangrove forest. So that sense that uh, the, the raising of stream under the mangrove forest, bringing uh, the idea of organic farming and bringing very fresh food to, to the table. There are some other examples like uh, a combination of rice and stream plantation, right. using stream or eating uh, insects uh, in the rice field. So uh, less using pesticide, for example. So all kind of things um, as a real, a real opportunities that people take from the problems of climate change. Right, right. Well, this is really this is really fantastic, and we're talking with Dr. Quan from Vietnam. You can get him on uh, Facebook at uh, Quan Q U A N G Nguyen N G U Y E N. Uh, and then N-G-O-C-B-N. He loves to have friends. He's a very popular guy. Check him out. Um, we're going to take a little break uh, and listen to some music for a minute. And then we'll be right back with uh, Dr. Kwan.
that, of course, was Michael Jackson with the Earth Song. Our guest today is Dr. Kwam. He's from uh, Vietnam. He's an expert on all things rural and agricultural development and many other things. At the top of the show, I said he was the author of an incredibly interesting book that was equally difficult, uh, interesting uh, and difficult to um, pronounce. It's Hitrotopia in Forest Management. Tell us a little bit about your book, Quan. I know this wasn't on the question list, but I just can't, I just can't resist. <laughs> I actually, I can tell all days about my book, uh, of course, because it's part of my, my life. I spent about 20 years of uh, uh, working in forest resource management and the book is real results of the experience and, uh, and the local knowledge uh, that I have learned from local people in forest resource management. So basically, I use Foucault's, uh, Foucault's uh, theory, um, namely uh, heterotopia, to uh, look at uh, a space, uh, because we talk, we, um, in forest resource management, we talk a lot about space. So the space that power suspended. So I try to use different forms of power, including uh, invisible power, hidden power, observable power, to see how people react in each form or each space of uh, where power existed. So I look at the heterotopia um, in a physical form, uh, for example, like sacred forest of the local people. So in that uh, space, uh, according to Foucault, the heterotopia is the space that in between real life and uh, utopia. In that space, the power is suspended. People live uh, peacefully. So I use that space. Uh, I try to look for that space and use uh, those spaces for uh, for both political uh, politicians, uh, practitioners, and uh, all kind of people to uh, to discuss, because that in development discourse you see that there's lots of uh, tension, there are lots of uh, conflicts uh, in discussion in finding the way forward. Um, so um, I try to invite people to those space and uh, to discuss, and I find that in those space people find, like I mentioned earlier, the peaceful moment and they tend to cooperate with each other more than in other space. So in conclusion, the heterotopia is a very good space where people can, can work with each other, can be more dynamic, can be more cooperative, can be more constructive. Well, you know, it's a, it's a, fascinating, con uh, it's a fascinating concept, and I know we spoke lots about it on, on our long car rides. I certainly think that uh, this kind of concept would be useful right now for the United States and their uh, presidential elections. <laughs> but I don't know where the safe space for people might be. What I wanted to ask you, you know, sort of maybe as a last kind of question is, um, you know, where do, where do we see hope? Where do you see hope? in terms of all the challenges that are facing uh, you know, a country like Vietnam, but the world more generally in terms of climate change. How can we see, how can we see hope for change? I, I think that is a very, very difficult question. I have to be frank with you that I don't have a right answer for the hope. But uh, like I mentioned about my book, I really hope that people find a space to work together um, you uh, earlier you have mentioned that some people still do really believe in climate change, and I read quite many books, and some people even doubt about the the reality of climate change. Some people say that maybe there was a little bit of uh, how to say exaggeration of uh, of the climate change, make people more worry than is uh, a really um, a, a, uh, it's a reality. Uh, so my I think my hope is that people should. Uh, 
open their mind to a certain extent to see the climate change um, that appear every day. Uh, that's my first hope. And second hope is that uh, people around the world should really see some realities that we are suffering now in Vietnam. And then uh, those uh, significant stories about climate change, the really uh, risks and, and problems that people suffer nowadays can bring to the table, like it to the United Nations, that people can really see it, the climate change, and then they can have uh, some joint actions or whatsoever strategies so to address the issue of climate change globally. Yeah, well, it's not a it's not a simple thing that we're going to have to resolve, and we're going to have to do it quick. But I am I am hopeful and positive because there are people like you, Dr. Kwan, working on the issue and and making it a part of your life's uh, challenges. So uh, our guest today has been Dr. Kwan. He's from Vietnam, uh, agricultural expert, uh, author. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, thank you very much, Mark, and thank you everyone for enjoying the. If you want to get a hold of, of Dr. Kwan, you can reach him at Facebook at uh, Kwan, Q-U-A-N-G, Nguyen, N-G-U-Y-E-N, and then N-G-O-C-B-N, uh, and you can catch him there on Facebook. Thanks again, Dr. Kwan. I'm Mark D'Souza Shields, host of The Sustainable Century. Thanks for listening. I hope you liked it. If you did, I encourage you to check out the Sustainable Century blog at thesustainablecentury.net. Remember to click like in all the right places. Better yet, pass the blog or pass the pod along. And remember, it's up to you. It's up to us to make this a happier and healthier world.